everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and today we're going to discuss drafting multicolor decks in Neon Dynasty. Notes are available at patreon.com slash draftingarchetypes for anyone who'd like to follow along as I go over this. For this episode, I am not really going to be referencing or thinking about any of the statistics on 17lands.com. I don't think that any of the uh, tracked win rates are really relevant because I think that it's kind of comparing apples to oranges to compare multicolored decks to two-colored decks in terms of like win rate and stuff because I think that what you get there is a lot more about how open your colors happen to be and just kind of how well the draft went where people are pushed into multicolor spaces when their opening colors happened to not be open in a way that makes comparison a little muddy. So I didn't really try to investigate or lean into that. And instead, I'm just going to be talking about my own beliefs and experiences and uh, what I think is important when drafting multicolored decks. So while in general, I try to use stats to make sure that I'm saying things that are likely to be true for other players rather than just for players who are going to draft precisely the way that I would. In this case, understand that where I'm coming from is just my own experiences and I'm going to try to lean into expressing how to draft this the way that I would to have similar results. But this isn't necessarily like the one truth about uh, when or how to draft multicolored decks or how they succeed or fail or anything. Big picture on multicolored decks. Uh, structurally, if you're going to play a lot of colors, you need to have cards that allow you to cast your spells. You can't just play a random mix of basic lands and no other cards that acknowledge that it's going to be hard to have the right colors of mana to cast your spells when you're playing three or more colors and expect to just draw the right lands. You need to prioritize non-basic lands and cards that make it more likely that you're going to have the right colors of mana to cast your spells in some way during the draft. And all of these cards that you draft that make it so that your mana works are going to essentially cost mana. The dual lands come into play tapped, which essentially costs you one mana. A card like Commune with Spirits, one green sorcery, uh, look at the top four cards of your deck and put a land or enchantment from among them into your hand uh, costs one mana. A card like Grafted Growth or Network Terminal that will give you whatever color of mana you need from then on. It's going to cost you three mana. Ecologist's Terrarium, which will find a land, is going to cost two mana. So all of these things that you want to look for and put in your deck to let you have the colors that you need cost you some amount of mana. And the fact that you're spending mana in uh, presumably the early game to get these effects to line up, or well, to get your mana to work, means that you can't spend that mana pressuring your opponent. You also can't spend that mana defending yourself or impacting the board in any way. This means that you are likely to be playing from behind in some way and that you are unlikely to be able to get ahead. This means that you are sacrificing some early game strength, presumably to get some kind of benefit. In this case, generally, uh, what you're getting is synergies that are not available to decks that play fewer colors or uh, more likely just the ability to cast more uh, like a greater percentage of the powerful cards that you've seen throughout the draft. So 
What that means is you're giving up something early and kind of definitionally, that means that the reward that you're getting, you'll get later. So in general, you should be expecting that your multicolored decks are looking to play a longer game. This means that you want to prioritize defensive cards rather than aggressive cards because you've designed your deck to benefit over time and you're just not well positioned to capitalize on uh, cards that try to end the game um, quickly. So that should be informing everything that you're doing, uh, is understanding that you're going to be playing from behind, you need to not fall too far behind, and you're trying to leverage increased strength in a long game. Therefore, all of your cards should be intended to prolong the game and to benefit later and to avoid falling too far behind. The most important thing that you can do to avoid falling too far behind is prioritize two mana plays that impact the battlefield. Turn one is the best turn to play a tapped land because it's smooth, like you spend all of your mana that turn and it uh, maximizes the chance that you'll have the color that you need to play something on the second turn. The second turn is a good time to play an untapped land so that you have two mana and you can play a two drop. If you don't play anything on turn one or two, you might start to fall meaningfully behind against an opponent who's uh, curving out aggressively. If you played a two, the advantage that your opponent has from playing a one into a two isn't that big, and usually your opponent won't have done that. The idea, your hope is that by playing something that costs two on two, you won't fall too far behind if you need to play a tapped land and another two drop on three, or if you need to spend your third turn playing a network terminal or grafted growth that'll set you further behind. Uh, where you really end up getting yourself into trouble is when you didn't play something on two and then you need to spend turn three with one of those mana producing cards then you are way behind against an opponent who's curved out when you need to try to stabilize on four, which you could potentially do, but you end up losing a lot of games when your opponent has a removal spell for your first creature if your first creature isn't until turn four, because at that point you can have taken so much damage and be so far behind in terms of number of creatures on the battlefield that it becomes impossible to catch up. Whereas if you played really just anything that affects the board at any point, so it could be a creature or a saga on two, it's a lot easier to stabilize and start turning the game around on turns four and five. So the first thing that you want to think about is making sure that you can do stuff for two mana and making sure that you're going to have the right two mana to be able to do that. That usually means one or two primary colors that uh, you expect to have that those colors of mana on turn two, and then having two mana plays in those colors. And then you'll have other kind of secondary or tertiary colors that you expect to have access to the ability to like get that color of mana at some point in the game, but not necessarily in the first two turns. So if you're counting how many cards you have that can give you any given color of mana. I, I talk about this as counting your number of sources. You want to think about having generally like at least eight sources of the things that like of, of the colors of your two drops. And you don't get to count your network terminals and ecologist terrariums and 
Sunblade Samurais toward those eight sources because they can't let you cast those two drops on turn two. So you'll end up with kind of a jump in the number of sources that you have for things later on where you get to count all of your not only Ecologist Terrariums and Sunblade Samurais, but also your Grafted Growths and Network Terminals. If you're not looking for the, to like use that mana until turn four or later, you can freely count all of that stuff when counting how many sources. And so for your secondary type things, you might be pretty comfortable having like six sources uh, counting all of that stuff of your like extra colors. But you really want to make sure that your primary colors, and that might just be one color or it could be two colors, it's hard to have three primary colors in that it's hard to have eight different cards that can give you mana of three different colors each that aren't where those things are available by turn two. Uncharted Havens in large numbers would be the only way that you could really possibly get that done. Figuring out early in the draft which colors are going to be your primary colors, those that you're going to support eight or nine sources of counting only sources that give you that color of mana by turn two, will tell you which two drops to prioritize uh, so that you can play things on turn two so that you don't fall too far behind. And that'll give you the essential infrastructure of having really a playable multicolor deck. Once you know which your two colors are, you want to figure out which two drops you're looking for in those colors. So for example, if white is one of your primary colors, you don't really want the 2-1 Samurai to be one of your primary uh, cards in that color because it won't protect you very well. And the card I'm talking about is Iganjo Exemplar, uh, the 2-1 Sam Human Samurai Enchantment that whenever you attack with a warrior or samurai alone, it gets plus one, plus one until end of turn. That's an aggressive card. It will be hypothetically be an acceptable blocker. It trades with a lot of threats, but it's not what you should be looking for. You should be looking for a card like Air of Enlightenment, which won't be able to block right away, but will block better once it can block because it will be a 2-2 with first strike. And it'll also scry to help you figure out your mana situation and gain two life. And it's okay that it doesn't block right away because when I talk about trying not to fall too far behind, what I really mean is number of like blockers that you end up having on turn three or four. It's okay to take a little bit of damage from a one drop or a two drop because you can't block yet because you're gaining some life to offset that. What you really need is some spot, some point in the future where you're going to turn the corner. And I talked about how if you if your first four play is a four drop and your opponent has a removal spell for it, now you just get hit by all of their creatures again. But if you'd played an era into a four drop, they have a removal spell. You still have this two two first striker that's likely going to be able to block the two drop that's trying to attack you still at that point. So era of enlightenment is actually a great two drop for this kind of strategy. A spirited companion is another great option. There are a lot of creatures that don't want to attack into it because anything with one toughness would trade and your opponent doesn't want to trade with a spirited companion because they'd be down a card. Also, drawing a card is a great way to make sure that you continue to find your colors, make your land drops, do everything you need to do. So in white, if you've established that white is one of your base colors, then Air of Enlightenment, uh, Spirited Companion, and also to some extent Wanderer's Intervention become good two mana plays to look forward to avoid falling too far behind. But those cards, 
especially Era, and to a lesser extent Spirit and Companion, drop off in terms of how important they are to you if you're not planning to get white early. It's still fine to use Wanderer's Intervention if you won't have white mana reliably until turn four. Say if you have, you know, six sources counting uh, Network Terminal or whatever, then it's fine to play Wanderer's Intervention. Wanderer's Intervention is kind of better to cast later. You can't really count on being able to spend two mana on it on turn two, because if you're on the play, for example, it's extremely unlikely that your opponent is actually going to be attacking with something on that turn. And so Wanderer's Intervention is a cheap card that lets you double spell later, rather than actually a two-mana play. And so it's uh, not essential to you know, have, two, have the white mana on turn two to maximize that card. If you are green, which you very frequently are, you're looking at Bamboo Grove Archer as kind of the best common to buy you time there as a two-drop. You can also use Fang of Shigeki, and then at Uncommon, you can play stuff like Asus's Many Journeys. I don't consider it ideal, but if you're struggling to find twos, Jugai Preserver, or uh, not Preserver, the 2-2 two, two that gets plus one, plus one when it attacks or block, or when it, uh, it is in combat with a creature, Trainee, maybe, is another acceptable two-drop um, there. Yeah, Jugai Trainee. In blue, you're looking at really just the modern age. Moon Circuit Hacker is a playable blue card when you have a good amount of blue mana but it's not really in this defensive space. In general, it's it's an, it's not a card that you're generally prioritizing in multicolor decks. It has a place basically only when you care about the value that you get out of picking up a creature with it. So it's really best only if you have, you know, some number of cards like Searchlight Companion or Spirited Companion. Really the time, the, the card that is going to most change uh, my prioritization of Moon Circuit Hacker in a draft, if I'm a multicolor deck, is whether or not I have a Cap Attack Wrecker. Because resetting the counter on Cap Attack Wrecker is so good that I want Moon Circuit Hacker to do that. Otherwise, Moon Circuit Hacker is not really the kind of value creature that I'm looking for. Black is mostly going to be Lethal Exploit, Virus Beetle, and Okiba Reckoner Raid, as far as like the cards that you look for if you are heavy black, if black's one of your primary colors, otherwise you want to prior you don't prioritize those cards so much. And then if you aren't finding the good two drops in your primary colors, another great one to keep an eye out for is papercraft decoy, which you can safely use in any multicolor deck to make sure that regardless of uh, which colors you found, you can make a play on turn two that can block acceptably. Papercraft decoy is a very good card to look for early on when you're multicolor deck to hedge to make sure that no matter what colors you end up sliding into or what distribution of your colors you end up using, it's there to block for you in the early game. I don't mention red because really the only common in red that I'm seriously drawn to in these multicolor decks is Kami's Flare. And that's only if, if I have some other higher rarity red card that I want in my deck such that I want red mana anyway, then Kami's Flare is a reasonable removal spell to play. And uh, the alternative would just be if my um, fixing is really accessibly good, like if for other reasons I want to play too many Grafted Growths and Network Terminals such that I can easy, easily cast Kami's Flare anyway, then I might look to pick up some Kami's Flares to supplement the removal in my deck. So first thing you want to make sure that you're doing is prioritizing 
this functional early game where you make sure you don't fall too far behind. Next thing you want to do, well, really something you're thinking about in conjunction with that is making sure that your mana works, prioritizing your non-basic lands and network terminals and all those other cards that I mentioned that can sort out your mana. Remembering that anything that draws cards or scries really does meaningfully contribute to your ability to find your colors in some way. Uh, I had a deck recently where my mana was really shaky, but I had four copies of the Modern Age, and that let me kind of cheat on raw number of uh, cards of each source that I was playing, because if I had blue mana, then the Modern Age could let me see appreciably more cards to find my missing colors or to find more Modern Ages to keep digging. On that note, card draw in general is a great way to, is a great substitute for color fixing because as you draw more cards, you're just more likely to see your mana of your missing colors. But in this format in particular, I really try to avoid, especially in these multicolor decks, cards that just draw cards. So I'm relatively low on stuff like Mnemonic Sphere and Thirst for Knowledge because I just don't think that while you're uh, putting yourself behind to make your mana work, you can also afford to take a further tempo hit to draw extra cards. There are so many ways to generate value in this format without spending mana to not impact the board that plan to do that instead. You know, I'm talking about cards like the Modern Age, which doesn't technically generate value, but it gives you really meaningful card selection. And Kami of Terrible Secrets and Spirited Companion, Imperial Oath. Those are the kinds of cards that you're looking for. Geothermal Kami with some kind of synergy or Shrine Steward with some kind of synergy. There are just a lot of ways to grind out card advantage that don't require spending mana that fully doesn't commit to the board. And if I am looking for just essentially straight card draw, I would generally prefer Season of Renewal to those cards because it kind of gives me card selection and potential loops and stuff like that that are more valuable, I think. The other thing that you want to make sure of once you know that you have your early infrastructure to avoid taking too much damage, as well as your good mana to make sure that you can cast your spells, the next thing to look for is removal. And... This is a format where I prioritize removal less highly than I do in many formats, but when you are playing a planning to play a very long game, you want to make sure that you have your bases covered. And by that, I mean that you have somewhere in your deck some way to answer most of the like powerful rares and uncommons that really do demand an answer that you can run into. There aren't that many of them, but it's extremely important to be able to answer them when you need to. So you want to have some removal spells you want them to be reasonably efficient, and most of the removal spells in this format are somewhat narrow and or somewhat inefficient. So it's good to have a good mix so you can have a range of efficiencies and a range of um, just answers to different kinds of permanents. There are a lot of acceptable common removal spells in this space. We're talking about cards like Intercessor's Arrest, the three mana white enchantment that makes a card unable to attack or block or crew vehicles. Repel the Vile, the four mana in white instant that exiles a creature with power for a greater or an enchantment. Wander's Intervention, 
three mana, two mana, deal four damage to an attacker or blocker, fade into antiquity, green two, sorcery, exile, and artifactor enchantment. Moon snare specialist to some extent counts here. That's uh, three and a blue, ninja two two, bounce something, and you can ninja it for three mana. Lethal Exploit, one and a black, target creature gets minus two, minus two, plus number of modified creatures you control. Twisted Embrace, a two and two black, enchant creature, ETB, kill a creature, enchanted creature gets plus one, plus one. Kami's Flare, three damage to a creature for one and a red if you have a modified creature to its controller. It's also Master's Rebuke in green, uh, one and a green, instant, a creature you control deals damage equal to its power to one of your opponent's creatures. Oh, and Tamiyo's Completion in blue. Three mana, flash, or a enchanted permanent, or creature, or planeswalker. Enchanted creature, or planeswalkers, taps, doesn't untap, and loses all of its text. Maybe it can also hit artifacts. It can probably hit artifacts. You want to just have, like, a mix of removal spells. And then if you have removal spells that you can search for with Shrine Steward, then you want to have Shrine Steward. If you have removal spells that you can pick up with Geothermal Kami, like Twisted Embrace and Fall of Lord Kanda, the uncommon saga that uh, kills a creature with converted mana cost four or greater as its first chapter. If you have that kind of stuff, you want Geothermal Kami to pick that up and reuse it. There are a bunch of these kind of like opt-in synergy cards that aren't essential, but when you have part A being the part that works by itself, so Twisted Embrace then you can look for part B, the part that uh, synergizes with Twisted Embrace, so Shrine Steward or Geothermal Kami. I, th- I, en- I generally try not to preemptively take Shrine Stewards and Geothermal Kamis before I have the necessary components to want to play with them. But if there's a pack that has no card that I would want in my deck, then I'll take that as a card that has some upside over a card that doesn't have any upside. But I won't take a card that has conditional over upside over a card that has unconditional upside. So I would take like Wander's Intervention over Shrine Steward if I don't already have a Twisted Embrace. But if I already have a Twisted Embrace and some other aura that I can find with Shrine Steward, then I might take Shrine Steward over Wander's Intervention. So once you have your playable twos, functional mana, and a good mix of removal, you have an infrastructure. Those are all of the necessary components to have a playable deck, to not get run over, not lose to bombs, not just like mulligan to oblivion. So that that's like the core of a functional multicolor deck. If you have all of those boxes checked, that doesn't necessarily mean your deck is good. It just means your deck is probably playable. The last thing that you need is some reason to believe that you're going to win a long game. Uh, All of those things let you potentially play a long game, but why do you have inevitability rather than your opponent? And the best answer here is bombs. Those are often rares and mythics, but something like Behold the Unspeakable, the blue five mana uncommon saga that gives your opponent's creatures minus two power with its first chapter, then scry two, draw two, or if you were empty-handed at the beginning of the turn, which is to say if you have one card when it resolves, draw four, and then it becomes a flying trampling creature with power and toughness equal to the number of cards in your hand. That can also count as a bomb. Um, Blossom Prancer, two green, three, four, four, reach, ETB, look at four cards, put a one of them, 
probably only a permanent or something, maybe some specific kinds of permanents into your hand. If you choose not to or can't, you gain three or four life instead. That is another really good, like acceptable bomb type card. Imperial Oath uh, is the one common that really counts in this space. Great at just stabilizing the board, turning the corner, giving you card selection, finding your other powerful cards. And then the, another thing that I look for in this space that's a really good way to have kind of hard inevitability is having some kind of graveyard loop in your deck. That means some combination of Colossal Sky Turtle with Season of Renewal, which uh, your Season of Renewal returns your Colossal Sky Turtle and something else your Colossal Sky Turtle returns your Season of Renewal. Or Shigeki, the rare, can take the place of either of those cards. If you have either one of those, they can return Shigeki and Shigeki can return them. There are a few other ways to loop with Shigeki. There are a couple other more fringe loops, but mostly it's going to involve some combination of those three cards. You can also potentially do it with Geothermal Kami uh, with Green Black Uncommon. Geothermal Kami can pick up Gloom Shrieker. Gloom Shrieker can pick something up. If your Geothermal Kami trades, then your Gloom Shrieker can pick up the Geothermal Kami to pick up the Gloom Shrieker again. It's not exactly an infinite loop, but it gives you the ability to have this like weird, unkillable Geothermal Kami uh, as long as you are um, careful with your Gloom Shrieker. You can also use ninjas to return either the Geothermal Kami or the Gloom Shrieker. So you can end up getting just kind of a large amount of value there as opposed to an infinite loop. That's often enough. Kappa Tech Wrecker weirdly can end up in a similar space here where it's somewhere between a great early two drop and a removal spell and a bomb. But for the most part, you're looking to have some kind of rare and not just like a good rare, but a rare that specifically gives you some kind of inevitability. Um, great examples are Shigeki or Tameshi. Jugen is a good engine. Fable the Mirror Breaker is a good engine. Kami's War is a good engine if you have good ways to get it back. A lot of these are cards that just have some of the best win rates in the set. Another option is farewell this is a little bit different it's not going to like win the game by itself but it's pretty easy to draft in such a way that it will work like count as a bomb and you can kind of draft your deck around it if you do have farewell and you're trying to use it in this kind of deck you want to try to prioritize focusing on cards that have a single type rather than multiple types. So rather than having enchantment creatures or artifact creatures, have creatures that are not enchantments or artifacts or have artifacts or enchantments. Some way that you can choose types such that you exclude some type that lets you keep some of your permanents while answering all of your opponent's non-land permanents is the ideal way to get value out of uh, Farewell. But if you just want to prioritize making sure that you have cards in your hand and your opponent's overextended and you can clear everything except you have cards left to cast and they don't that's another way to win a game with farewell so anyway you should have some number of really powerful cards if you're going to draft this way and the way you that you do that is you don't try to draft this kind of deck unless you already have them or you allow yourself to extend into this kind of deck because you see them so if you are drafting like 
a green-white proactive enchantment synergy deck. And then in pack two or pack three, you get Tameshi, the blue three mana, two, three, that lets you spend a white and X and return a land or turn an artifact or enchantment from your graveyard to play. You can add white to your deck to be able to play Tameshi. And now that you have Tameshi, you have this bomb that you can play toward. And because you were drafting two color green white deck, you probably already have your infrastructure covered. So you'll still play the two drops that you had in those colors. And now you'll look to uh, find fixing and removal and extra bombs throughout the rest of the draft. So you can, it's very, very easy to pivot into this space by just grabbing a powerful card in a color that you didn't have. And when you do that, you know that you can incorporate the cards that you had before by thinking about these pieces that I mentioned that you need to look for and make sure that you have in the rest of the draft. So when you pivot, think about which check marks you already have in terms of like, do you already have uh, good two drops that'll keep you alive in your colors? Most likely you do, because most likely those that's the thing that you were most likely to already have as part of your two color deck. Do you have the mana to make this third color work? Most likely not. That probably wasn't something you were prioritizing until you had a reason to go into this space. So now you know that the th cards that are going to make your mana work sh have to shoot up in your pick order to make sure that you get enough of them. Whereas if you were had started here earlier, you might have been able to take some earlier. You'll have more, you'll be closer to where you need to be, and you'll be able to potentially deprioritize them, which means potentially floating some through where you might not take a network terminal that you see third pick because you might try to wheel it and it'll be okay if you fail. Whereas you might have to third pick a network terminal if you pivot into this deck and you didn't have fixing earlier. But that's fine because while you weren't taking fixing earlier in the draft, you were probably shoring up other aspects of your infrastructure, taking removal, taking those good two drops, taking powerful cards. So you can get all this stuff in any order. You need to know what stuff to look for throughout the draft so that you know to prioritize whatever you're missing as your deck really starts to take shape. Incidentally, a lot of the reason that I typically prioritize defensive creatures earlier in a draft over aggressive creatures is because I want to be open to the possibility that I may end up shifting into this kind of deck. And I want those to be there and ready to contribute to my game plan. So like Golden Tail Disciple is an example of a card that that's the three mana, two, three lifelink white creature. I don't prioritize that in my multicolor decks because on turn three, I want to be fixing, and on turn two, I want to be playing the blocker. Also, I don't want it if I'm not like base white because it's only good early as a defensive card. But if I'm drafting like white and another color, I might prioritize it more highly than some other white three drop because if I want to add colors to a white base, it's a really good way to extend the game. And so it can play well if I need to pivot into other colors that I had been before. Incidentally, I didn't mention it while I was listing commons that can kind of work as a finisher, but Mirror Shell Crab and to a lesser extent, the Tanuki are reasonable ways to like sneak extra finishers into a deck, but they aren't in themselves something that I would see as a reason to believe that you have inevitability. They're just a large creature. Your opponent can answer them pretty easily but they're nice to play in your deck. They give you some flexibility. 
mirror shell crab doubles as interaction and something to let you uh, end the game, just get extra power in your deck to have inevitability. Greater Tanuki, the 6-5 trampler for four and two green doubles as fixing and then a threat if you draw it later. Uh, it has channel, search your library for a base gland, put it into play, tapped, which is why it's fixing. The other way that you can end up kind of pivoting into this space is maybe you start with some kind of bomb that you don't want to let go of, but you find that the color that it's in isn't really open and there's some other color that's open. And then you end up drafting kind of exactly the same deck you would have drafted if you started in some open colors and then opened a bomb in a color that you're going to splash. You just, you know, the order that the cards come obviously doesn't matter once it gets to deck building. And you can have this, you know, cards that look similar regardless of which order all that happened in. Side note, Kami of Terrible Secrets is really, 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 really good in these decks. If you are uh, making sure that you have artifacts, Network Terminal in general is great uh, if and only if you have enough artifacts to be able to loot with it. Uh, it's good enough that I actually like it in some decks that are using it kind of like to ramp and then for late game fixing, even when I'm not splashing with it, even though the strongest thing that it does is fix your mana and let you splash. If you are playing it because you need it to fix your mana, you really want to make sure that your deck is somewhat reliably going to be able to activate it to loot. Um, so if you're playing Network Terminal, then you want to start prioritizing other artifacts. The best other artifacts you can have, Ecologist Terrarium, Common, Ecologist Terrarium, Papercraft Decoy, Searchlight Companion. To a lesser extent, but it still kind of counts, Try and Steward. You want it to be early, but you're not really prioritizing looting until later, later most of the time because of how much mana it costs. And then some black cards, Virus Beetle, and to a lesser extent, Mercatai Ambusher. You can play something like the, the Puzzle Maker, the 1-4 flying blue creature that scries and it becomes tapped. I don't like it a lot, but it's playable if you need an extra artifact. There are a few others that are passable. When you're looking for artifacts, sometimes you end up going to Brute Suit or something. Yeah, Moon, uh, Moonfolk Puzzle Maker is the name of that blue card, I think. But you want to prioritize this stuff. Like, if you're prioritizing Network Terminal, then you want to look for other artifacts. And when you're in that space where you're looking for other artifacts, it's often going to, going to involve going to Black. And when you're going to Black and artifacts, that's where you're looking for Kami of Terrible Secrets. Scrounger was mentioned as a question. That's the 1-4 Black creature that can tap to make a treasure if a creature has died. That card is really bad, and I try to avoid playing it unless I have explicit synergies for it or a ton of removal and some expensive things that I'm trying to fix for. I think that playing Scrounger is a special case. I suppose a sufficiently special case might be I have three or more Kami of Terrible Secrets and I'm very low on artifact count, but I would hope to find non-Scrounger artifacts to do it with. How many artifacts and enchantments to... Real <laughs> I guess... This is a question which I would usually wait for, but uh, is pertinent. So um, there's a question about how many artifacts and enchantments you need for Kami of Terrible Secrets. If I only have four of either artifacts or enchantments, I will think about not playing a Kami of Terrible Secrets. If I have five as my floor, unless I only have five of both, I'll probably play it. But the sixth I see is like, a meaningful value add in terms of making my Kami of Terrible Secrets more reliable. And then the more you have above that, the more valuable Kami of Terrible Secrets are, the more Kami of Terrible Secrets you have, the more you want to go higher. The number that you have of the one that you have more 
matters, but it doesn't matter as much as the number you have fewer of. I've had like eight of each and it's been at, at that point, Comedy of Terrible Secrets is really, really, really amazing. If you have, you know, five or six of one and nine to 11 of the other, you're reasonably happy. But this is also all kind of a function of how much card draw and selection you have. And, you know, commune with spirits may or may not count as an additional enchantment, depending on how likely it is to find an enchantment and stuff like that. Anyway, network terminal is much better if you're black, because if you're black, you're more likely to have artifacts and it counts as an artifact. And there's this whole like Kami of Terrible Secrets, network terminal, shrine steward, twisted embrace synergy package that you want to be looking for using sometimes, not other times. If you are like, you know, in more of a bant space, then you're trying to fix more with commune with spirits and grafted growth and less with network terminal because you're less likely to be able to use your network terminal for looting. There's a bunch of this kind of like fringe synergy, which things you're trying to support, how you're going to make the mana base work in various color combinations type stuff that you really just want to learn over time and practice rather than that I can spell out all of. But that's the stuff that you want to be like thinking about and learning as you get better with these multicolor decks. But you, you know, the, the starting point is making sure that you have the infrastructure that I talked about. In general, this whole, you know, multicolor way of drafting is similar to a, it's it's a mindset. It's just a way of evaluating every card that you see. And it's relatively color agnostic. And once you understand or once you've chosen in a particular draft to exist in this space, it kind of colors how you look at everything. And then there's just sort of this like flow chart about how valuable each card is, what you need, where you're at. And the color of the card is a piece of this flow chart rather than a is this accessible to me? Yes, no kind of binary the way that it is if you're drafting a two color deck where it's just like, okay, either this card's in my colors or it isn't. If it's in my colors, I'm going to think about taking it. If it's not in my colors, I'm not going to think about taking it. Once you've gone down this path, cards aren't in your color or not in your color. There's different weight assigned to this is in a color where I expect to have this many sources that can cast it. That means that I'm likely to be able to cast it at this stage in the game. That affects how valuable it is to me by this much. Similarly, there might be a card that isn't in one of your colors yet, but you have to figure out whether or not it's worth adding that color to support that card that you've seen. So there's a very complex flowchart that assesses how much extra strength or weakness to assign to a card based on how smoothly your deck can cast it and what it implies about how future sacrifices that you'll have to make to like be able to cast it. And this flowchart isn't like a static thing that I could write out where it's like this card better than this card, better than this card, better than this card, ignoring colors. Because again, how many sources you have for each color card impacts it. But then also you have to take into account all these pockets of synergy that you may or may not be uh, trying to include or not. And so, you know, the, well, how many auras do I have and how far into the draft am I? Because that tells me how many more I'm going to find. All of that in impacts how much do I value Shrine Steward and how likely, it, you know, how much should I prioritize that?
So the calculus here is really, really complicated and gets a lot easier to parse and handle the more practice you have navigating these decks. But I think that if you know the basics that you're looking for here uh, that I've covered, I would say that I would hope that this would put you in a place where you can reasonably safely explore this archetype and learn some of that stuff if you know what kinds of things you should be looking to figure out as you go and learn through multiple iterations of these kinds of drafts, assuming that all of you know this draft, this multicolored approach is new to you. Incidentally, I believe that this is a very much a multicolor format. Majority of my drafts, I play more than two colors. That said, this is the only episode that I'm doing that's dedicated to decks that are more than two colors, because I do think that this is the longest that a lecture portion of my podcast has ever been. And I do think that just understanding the fundamentals here is complicated and hard, such that uh, it's kind of too much and too narrow to get into every sub archetype of multicolor decks. And if you aren't comfortable with multicolor, then you should generally just be drafting two color decks, which you can do in this format. And when speaking to how best to understand the format and archetypes in general, I think that it's most valuable to people across a variety of skill sets and experience levels to focus on uh, two-color pairs and understanding them. But in this format where I personally am largely not drafting two-color pairs, I did want to offer people the kind of like baseline infrastructure to approach the format that way, if that's what you're trying to do. In general, I've uh, joked that my podcast, uh, Drafting Archetypes you're listening to now, is kind of the fundamental rules for approaching a format that are intended to kind of like work for everybody. And there's this, you know, kind of idea maybe often seen through the lens of like jazz that you need to like know the rules to know like when to break them and how to improvise and everything. And so the podcast is very much about like teaching the rules. And then for those of you who watch my stream, I stream uh, nightly at twitch.tv slash Samuel H. Black. That's kind of more how to break them or how I'm actually drafting in a way that, uh, you know, often doesn't always follow the rules that I'm recommending for everyone else. So that's just a kind of meta note on how I like to organize my content and lessons. All right. So wrapping up the lecture, turning this over to Twitch chat, any questions you had, even if you just asked them, if you don't feel like I've addressed them, please post them again to Twitch chat while I'm letting people gather and ask any of those questions. Want to thank my newest patrons over at patreon.com slash drafting archetypes, Will and Edward, and direct anyone else who's interested in supporting the podcast or getting more value out of the podcast in the form of access to my draft logs or notes or uh, any of the other things that we offer to just go over to patreon.com slash drafting archetypes, check out what we offer at various levels, see if you'd like to um, join the Patreon. All right, so questions from chat. You may have hit on this already, but how do you rank the fixers, like terminal versus grafted, etc.? In general, I think Uncharted Haven is the best of them. After that, context matters. 
Commune with spirits is the best, especially if you are base green and especially if you have very powerful uh, enchantments to find. If, for example, you have like the Jugan Saga, then you probably want to never pass a commune with spirits because it will both fix and find a bunch of your like relevant commons and stuff like that. But it also gives you a much higher shot at finding your like likely game winning mythic. If you are not as enchantment heavy, not as green based or not as enchantment bomb having, you will deprioritize community spirits and it might become second tier fixing. You might find that you need network terminal or something instead. Another big question is how many colors are you? If you are four or five colors, grafted growth and network terminal gain a lot of value relative to Ecologist Terrarium and even something like Greater Tanuki and even Uncharted Haven. These cards that give you any color function meaningfully differently from a card that gives you every color if you're four or five colors, while they function more or less identically if you're three colors. Because usually when you're three colors, a single piece of open-ended fixing, like a network terminal, will mean that you combined with the lands that you happen to have drawn, give you all of your colors. Whereas a network terminal will give you all of your colors in five in a five color deck, because it literally just taps for every color by itself. Ecologist Terrarium is going to give you one missing color, but if you won't need to get another missing color, you're going to need some other piece of fixing. Similarly, I mentioned network terminals a lot better if you have other artifacts, weaker if you don't. Grafted growth is better if you care about modified creatures, if you're base green, if you have a lot of creatures that cost two mana, uh, and creatures specifically rather than sagas, so that when you play it on three, you can actually get value out of that plus one plus one counter. All of these things, like their value changes, and there isn't just an objective ranking of the quality of the fixers. Also, the like non-basic lands, double on-color duels are very, very good. Usually, if you're three colors, Uncharted Haven is better. There might be exceptions to that. I don't know that I fully understand when those exceptions occur. In general, dual lands that are not your two primary colors and are instead a splash color and a primary color are generally better than dual lands that are your primary colors. However, once you have so many dual lands, that playing all of your dual lands might result in not getting the right balance of colors, then dual lands that are in your primary colors become better. Um, like, especially if you have, say, you're splashing black and you need to play a swamp because some of your fixing is like network terminal and greater tanuki, and you already have like two black dual lands, then a third black dual land might be pretty bad because it's giving you an extra black source above the number of black sources you actually need. But the first black dual land is pretty good because you don't actually want to have to play more than one swamp because if you draw multiple swamps, you won't have, you might not have like your base color and uh, it's going to cause problems. So there is really a complicated question about how to value each of the dual lands as a function of what kind of fixing you have and which colors it is. The weirdest part of it is that sometimes like being fully in your base color is good. Again, when you have a lot of dual lands and sometimes it's actively bad. 
relative to like other duels because you don't want to have to play a basic that gives you neither of your colors or you don't have to play more basics that give you neither of your colors. Like imagine that you are green, white, splashing black and you have a green, white duel. If you draw the green, white duel and a swamp, it's going to be a lot harder for you to double spell than if you had like a forest and a white, black duel. Because you're going to want to tap that duel for black like once, and then you're going to want to like tap it for your primary colors many times. And so the swamp is going to give you colorless every time, except for that one time when you cast the black spell. And it's going to make it harder for you to like double spell and generally make your mana work. And so that's why you don't want to prioritize your core colors unless, again, uh, you have so many duels that you have to like shift the balance back that way. We also get into fixing, like in terms of ranking how good the fixing is, there's also, well, like, where does Sunblade Samurai exist here, right? Like it's not strong fixing in that it only gives you one color, but it has this split purpose where the like that split purpose might be really valuable to you. You might care a lot, not only that it can be a 4-4 Vigilance creature for five mana, there's a sweet spot there. Note, Sunblade Samurai plays really, really well with Network Terminal and Grafted Growth, because it lets you spend mana on turn two or it lets you spend two mana at a time or five mana at a time, which are the perfect amounts when you're ramping on three. Because before you do it, you can uh, it, you can use it on either turn two to like find the missing land to play your three mana ramp spell. Or if you didn't need the extra land, then you can play it with your five mana ramps with your ramp spell on turn four as an above rate four drop. By above rate four drop, I mean below rate five drop, but still something that's actively good to do the turn after you played your network terminal. But aside from all of that value, Sunblade Samurai might be valuable to you because you might care about putting it in the graveyard for some reason. You might have Season of Renewal is the most common reason, but you might have the Okiba Salvage or uh, the rare version, Invoke Justice, and you might want to just like put a creature in your graveyard to reanimate with one of those things. Basically, all of the fixing that exists in this set has some kind of like extra context that makes it tricky to evaluate. And so I can't really rank how good those cards are because it's so contextual. But broadly speaking, prioritize lands over not lands when the goal is fixing. And beyond that, it gets messy. There's a question about don't you kind of have to be green based regardless? No. Most often you are green-based because green has the greatest number of commons that support this strategy and also offers additional fixing. But if you are, say, blue-white-based and you have Era of Enlightenment and the Modern Age as two mana cards that give you fixing and you have the network terminal and you have a good number of artifacts to let you activate it because you're playing blue, it's not hard to splash Black for Kami of Terrible Secrets, because blue-white decks are really, really good at having both an artifact and an enchantment. Maybe you also splash red for removal. And because you have so much card selection in blue and white from your cantrips from Spirited Companion, your scrying from Imperial Oath and Air of Enlightenment, your card selection from uh, the Modern Age, maybe you end up with like a good enough curve that you can even afford to play some dedicated blue card draw, and then uh, round that out with removal in red and black. You can absolutely play, you know, three or four color non-green. It's less common, but certainly in no way mandatory that you play green. Your Ecologist Terrarium plus Network Terminal plus Haven plus Dual Lands plus card selection can easily let the mana happen in the other colors. 
If you're fixing with grafted growth, how much more do you weigh having uh, two mana creatures to put the counter on? A little bit. I would say if I know for sure that I'm going to put two grafted growths in my deck and I'm base, let's imagine, let's imagine that I'm base green. Would I ever take a Jukai trainee over an Azusa's Many Journeys so that I can use the plus one plus one counter rather than missing out on it? No. <laughs> Am I more likely to play a Jukai trainee once I've drafted it? Yes. Hopefully that's given you some kind of range as to how much it matters. It's very it's very hard to speak to like a way to quantify the amount that it matters. The answer is more like tiebreaker than defining is the best way that I would say how much it matters. Having decided that you're five color, do you more highly prioritize a dual land or uncharted haven? In general, uncharted haven by a lot. But there's some world where you have enough ecologists, terrariums, and greater tanukis that you become really good at choosing a single missing color, but you're not necessarily great at like just getting random different colors to get up to five. And in that spot where you have a good amount of like choosing, a dual land can become better than like a haven. But you like it's that's kind of about balancing havens and duels. Like if you already have like your third haven, then like a dual land is almost definitely better than your fourth haven if you're four or more colors, but not better if you're three colors. And like only maybe better depending on like how many other cards you have. Basically, like when in doubt, take Haven, but it's like possible to get to the point where it's correct to take a duel in special circumstances that I don't have a great way to spell out to you how to recognize exactly at this point. But it can happen. One time I took an on-color duel um, when it was base plus splash and I had invoke in the base color over a Haven. That would be another good time to consider it where you really don't want to name not your invoke color with Haven and you're happy to free roll an extra source. Anytime you have an invoke, I agree that dual lands of the invoke color shoot up over other uh, sources of fixing. That's And that's a good example of the kind of like fringe case that you kind of have to, that like at a certain point you'll be able to recognize when you see it, but it's really hard to like think to spell out in a like big o overview like this. Next up, can you have an overall good deck even with a horrible mana base or is a deck always bad if its mana base is bad? You know, cards have a game in hand win rate. And if all of your cards have really, really high win rates, but your mana is such that you can only cast most of them and not all of them, like, if your mana is such that you're 70% to cast any given card in your deck, then you can to some extent think of it as like all of your cards are 70% as good. And if all of your cards are so good that even with like 30% of their quality knocked off, they're still good, then it's still a good deck. But I think the relevant data point is, or the relevant thing to be thinking about when you're drafting is that it's really easy to reach a point where uh, you gain a lot more by improving your mana base than you lose by decreasing the quality of like your next best card, such that like when you have the kind of deck that might be a really good deck with a bad mana base, 
instead of taking a card that will improve your card quality, you should take a card that will improve your mana base. And you reach that point really quickly. Also, if you're in that space, consider just cutting a spell for a land. Like, even if it's putting you to like 19 lands and your curve isn't that high, it still might be worth just giving yourself a higher chance to cast your good cards rather than playing like your least good card. If you have a deck that's like you have overall good card quality, but a horrible mana base, you probably made a mistake in drafting and you should probably be prioritized fixing a little bit more highly than you did. Every now and then you might end up in a spot where it was like, I saw a bunch of bombs in different colors. I took the the table happened to prioritize mana fixing really highly. I didn't get enough. My deck's like, you know, awkward. Is it a bad deck? It's a worse deck than it would have been at a different table where you got that fixing. But if, you know, the power level's there, like still might work. Remember that you should... Not all mana fixing tells you it's mana fixing. Remember to, in that spot where you realize that you're low on fixing for the, you know, relative to where you want to be, look for eras of enlightenment in modern ages and any cantrip or any card draw spell, anything that gives you any kind of card selection to try to like shore up your mana base if you can't find explicit mana fixing. You don't need to go into every color pair, but are there specific archetypes you avoid splashing in? The more aggressive you are, the fewer cards you're planning to see per game, where scrying counts as seeing a card, the less you should splash. Splashing in general should be considered very, very differently than kind of everything about this archetype or this podcast. Like this podcast might cover some of how to splash, but for the most part, this is like about a separate philosophy of drafting multicolor that's different from the philosophy about when and how to splash. And this is really about prioritizing an entire like defensive infrastructure that's about trying to win a long game where splashing is a thing that you can do in a deck that's actively trying to end a game, but you generally don't want to in uh, aggressive decks. The more aggressive you are, the more paid off you need to get for trying to splash for it to be worth thinking about doing. Can I talk a bit about third color double pip cards? If you can keep your mana, your main two colors, 90% single pip. Like this is essentially about if grafted, if Behold the Unspeakable or Twisted Embrace or some strong rare isn't in your primary color, when should you play it and what should you do about it? So um, the example suggested here is to Behold the Unspeakable with grafted growth, but the Behold the Unspeakables weren't in the primary color. Can you do it? So yeah, I, I think that you want to be really careful about double pip cards out of your primary colors. But it's not impossible. And I think that um, this question about if you can keep your main two colors to 90% single pip isn't exactly the right question to ask, but it's thinking along the right lines. And that is, you want to make sure that your mana base is doing everything it needs to do. And whether you can get away with like doing certain more ambitious things is just a function of how much fixing you have. So some good baselines that I look for, and these aren't based on any particular math. This is just heuristics that I've developed that I try to follow. When I'm building my decks, these are the heuristics that I follow. If you've heard different ones, that's fine. They may or may not be more or less accurate than mine. These again are not scientific. If I'm trying to cast a two drop of a color, I wanna have eight sources for it. If I'm relying on a color to cast my fixing, I want to have nine sources for it. 
So if I have a green deck that's playing, you know, communes and grafted growth as my primary source of fixing, I want to have nine forests so that I can count those like fixing cards as actually being full sources of other colors. Eight sources to be a color that supports two drops, nine sources to be a color that your other colors rely on, seven sources to play something that costs two pips, and that like should be seven sources by turn, you know, four or five, and those double pip cards should be cards that you're happy to not play until turn five, really. Um, three to support a card rather than not playing it, and then like four or five to support multiple cards. Those are good kind of like baselines to look for. So to get back to should you splash, behold the unspeakable. If doing it doesn't take you below eight of each of your primary colors, and in the case where you're trying to splash with grafted growth, doesn't take you below nine green sources to cast the grafted growth, and you can get up to uh, seven blue, you can count like grafted growth as one and a half to two sources for those purposes, then do it. If there isn't a way for you to like meet all those benchmarks, then you probably shouldn't put the grafted growth in your deck. If you have enough grafted growths and enough fixing in general, you might have a base blue-green deck that is playing both grafted growth and uh, twisted embrace. It's just about making sure that you've reached your like, you know, necessary counts. The other thing that you want to be careful of there, especially when I talk about the really ambitious mana, where you're like green-white splashing, behold the unspeakable and twisted embrace, is you want to be really, really careful about how much you're double counting your network terminals and uncharted havens, where you know you have to choose a single color for those. And at the point where you're trying to like count it as a second blue source and a second black source while also counting it toward your like green and white sources. At a certain point, you have to just stop counting it for that stuff. Uncharted Haven is much, much, much better at letting you cast single pip cards than double pip cards, because if you're missing a color, you'll name that color. But if you have the first color of, you know, one of your things and you're missing a second, like you're not often going to name your second blue source with Uncharted Haven, unless your mana is really, really good. That's my best stab at answering that question. Okay. I believe this is uh, my longest episode yet, and I'm caught up. So I'm going to wrap this here. This is definitely a topic that if we were to dive, you know, we could go really, really long on every possible way that multicolored decks can break down. But hopefully this told you what you need to think about those, like, you know, deeply controlling uh multicolor decks that are uh, drafted in this particular mindset that is the mindset that I usually have when I'm drafting multicolor decks. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with the topic selected by the patrons over at patreon.com slash drafting archetypes. Thanks again, and bye for now. (laughs) 